Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle East Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the co-host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Osama al-Azamis, whose new book, Islam and the Arab Revolutions, the... Sorry, let me start this over, yeah? Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle East Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the co-host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking about Usama al-Azami's new book, Islam and the Arab Revolutions, the Ulama Between Democracy and Autocracy. While Usama's book focuses on the responses of several prominent Muslim religious scholars towards the 2011 popular Arab revolts in Egypt and Tunisia that toppled long-standing autocratic leaders and the subsequent counter-revolution, it is in effect about much more. It is about the relationship between the clergy and the state in the Muslim world, and about the theology and jurisprudence that is central not only to revolts, but to the competition between major Middle Eastern and Asian Muslim-majority states to define what constitutes Islam, and particularly moderate Islam, in an era of geopolitical transition. Usama al-Azmi, welcome to the show. Thank you, James. It's really an honor to be a part of this, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Thank you. We have a lot to cover in the next hour, but let's start with your intellectual biography. Tell us about the journey that took you to writing this book. Sure. Thank you very much again. Um, So this book has been um, a work that, in some respects, um, I started thinking about, sorry, just to show off the text itself. Please do. (laughs) <laughs> I, I started thinking about um, really as the Egyptian coup was unfolding. Um, I, I didn't think necessarily that I was going to write a book about this topic, but it was an, uh, the way in which um, Islamic religious scholars responded to um, sort of the coup and then the subsequent massacres um, that kind of punctuated the summer of that year um, was something which I found pr- profoundly concerning on a personal level. And so this kind of touches on an aspect that I talk about in the introduction of the book, my own positionality with respect to this subject, because I am also trained in, as well as being an academic in uh, sort of Near Eastern studies, um, that's what my doctorate was in. Um, I'm also trained as a seminarian, shall we say, um, someone, one of the ulama that we're speaking of. Um, And in a sense, that tradition of scholarship is about also exemplifying certain moral um, sort of standards. And so part of the impetus behind this book, though I don't sort of talk about it very substantively in the intellectual history component of it, but rather a little more in the epilogue, was the um, concern that people who are supposed to be moral exemplars were behaving in ways that weren't terribly exemplary in in some instances. Um, And so, you know, that kind of drove me to think about these um, questions. And also um, on the way, I wrote a few sort of um, pieces uh, that were more journalistic um, in the Huffington Post, in um, the Middle East Eye. Um, But eventually um, when I sat down and started writing seriously, um, the entire book, quickly sort of unfolded before my eyes in a sense. Um, And uh, I think it was a wonderful opportunity for me, despite the difficult subject matter at times, to reflect on the way in which um, sort of the Islamic tradition can be read in dramatically different ways in the modern period. 
um, and you know can be used to advocate for democracy um, and can be used to advocate for autocracy and indeed unfortunately harsh crackdowns uh, against um, pro-democracy activists um, so I hope that um, gives something of an idea of the motivations behind the book sure perhaps we can start discussing your book with you giving us a bird's eye view of the various scholars that populate your book, their differences when it comes to popular Arab revolts, and more generally towards political authority, and why it matters. Right. It's a very broad question, and I'll, I'll try and give um, you know a, a kind of broad sweep overview of the text. And I should highlight, um, so on the cover of the book, I've actually got a couple of scholars. So these two are scholars, and this is Mohammed bin Zayed, um, who uh, I believe David Kirkpatrick in the New York Times perhaps in 2019 or 2020, described as the most powerful um, sort of uh, leader in, or ruler in the Middle East. And I think that's very true. Um, now, the uh, the scholars whom I've only picked a handful of scholars to look at in this text, and I pick them because they are usually um, very prominent figures. Um, they are, in some cases, the Grand Mufti or the most senior sort of Muslim jurist uh, in a country. Um, in some cases, they are people like Yusuf al-Fadawi is a scholar who was um, sort of very liked by the Qatari state to the point that he was given his own show on Al Jazeera, the sort of Qatari news channel that was deeply influential in kind of fomenting the revolutions in twenty late 2010, early 2011. But um, part of the reason I, I kind of give, um, you know, look at specific scholars in this way is because a lot of this is actually a bit of a, you know, um, an academic analysis or a granular um, sort of intellectual history of the kind of doctrines that are being put forth by scholars who are either pro-democracy or pro-autocracy. And so there's there's a fair amount of, in a sense, um, you know, juristic um, discussion to be found in the book, which I try and make as accessible as possible and as sort of readable as possible, but sometimes it's a little involved. I have nine chapters to the text, uh, an introduction, a conclusion, and also an epilogue. And then I also have a handful of appendices, three appendices, which are translations of, I think, um, uh, you know, important documents from uh, sort of either from the period or from um, the not too distant past that shed further light on um, the sort of statements of certain uh, individuals. So the main scholar um, I start the book with is this figure, Yusuf al-Khardawi, who is um, a fascinating uh, figure in his 90s right now, an Egyptian who's domiciled in Qatar for the last 50, 60 years now. Um, so, you know, most of his life was in Qatar, but he was a graduate of the Azhar, which is the most prestigious, arguably the most prestigious seat of learning in the Sunni world, um, based in Cairo. And um, he was one of the Azhar's most sort of recognizable graduates. He was a very successful student, um, and he um, went through through the Azhar from its feeder schools at high school level all the way to the doctorate level. But at the same time, he was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, someone who had met with the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is kind of hard to believe now that people are alive who'd met him because he dies in 1949, Hassan al-Banna. And, uh, you know, Qaradawi, who was born in 1926, is someone who would have met him in his teens and early 20s, perhaps. Um, but someone who considered himself really a student of Banna and a, a devoted member of the Muslim Brotherhood, even though after we went to Qatar, he was no longer really a, a formal member of the sort of um, the institution structure. 
Um, and so um, those two identities are fascinating because in some respects, the Arab Spring turned out to be a contest between those two identities in the Islamic realm. And um, Qaradawi, I think, um, illustrates um, you know, that tension within uh, you know, his own sort of activities during this period. He is very forcefully uh, advocating uh, the democratic for the democratic revolutions. Um, but as I point out uh, in a few places in the book that, you know, people like Qaradawi advocate for what I'm describing as Islamic democracy, rather than what, you know, uh, in the West is very often assumed when people talk about democracy, meaning liberal democracy. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's just something uh, quite important to bear in mind. Um, as opposed to Qaradawi, you have um, a few um, scholars who come out mostly associated with the Egyptian state. So I'm looking mainly at Qaradawi's response to the Egyptian state. I do look at, in the first chapter, his response to the Tunisian uprisings, but the bulk of my book is focused on Egypt, and I, I kind of explain why I think that's justified. But um, a number of scholars emerge who are opposed, uh, sometimes explicitly opposed to Qaradawi, or in other instances opposed to the idea of revolution. Um, these include the, the Grand Mufti at the time uh, of Egypt, uh, someone called Ali Gumara, who's actually the other chap um, sort of mentioned. Uh, this is Yusuf al-Qaradawi in the center, and this is Ali Gumara on the left. Um, now, the Grand Mufti, uh, Ali Gumara, basically comes out and says, uh, protests against Mubarak are illegitimate. He uses the Islamic juristic term haram. So they're haram. And like him, the uh, Grand Sheikh of Al-Azhar or the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar, meaning the rector of the institution, who is actually, uh, um, since around 1961, due to Nasser's reforms, actually a member of the state. So he's um, a salaried um, state functionary and has the rank of a minister. Um, but he also, um, you know, expresses his opposition to the uh, protests against Mubarak. And then I also talk about a, a younger scholar who I think will probably become more important with the passage of time, considering his youth, um, Ali al-Jifri. But that actually introduces the UAE connection as well, because Ali al-Jifri calls in from the United Arab Emirates, where he's based in Abu Dhabi. And he has a, a foundation there, which um, has some important role to play in promoting sort of autocratic, what I've called autocratic Islam. And a couple of other scholars, Hamza Yusuf, and then a scholar whom um, you've uh, paid some attention to, James, in your writings, uh, Abdullah bin Bayya, uh, who is, um, in some respects, um, well, I, I would argue he's um, the most noted figure at the moment in counter-revolutionary Islam. Um, he is someone who was brought in by the UAE and um, set up as the head of something called the Forum for Promoting Peace in Muslim Societies in 2014. And in 2019, if, I, if my memory serves me correctly, he was appointed as the uh, basically most senior jurist, Islamic jurist in the UAE. Um, and so these are, in a sense, a constellation of scholars who are um, state, uh, you know, aligned and opposed to democracy. So the states that they're aligned to are autocratic states. But although he's interesting, he's not really state aligned in quite the same way. He kind of takes pride in his independence. The International Union of Muslim Scholars, which he um, until 2018 headed up, um, was based uh, in Qatar, but at the same time, sort of, uh, in a sense, notes with pride on its website that it's an independent institution. Whereas, this is something I, I don't believe I mentioned in the book, actually, whereas the Forum for Promoting Peace, something I do mention in the book that Abdul bin Bayer sets up in 2014, um, 
prominently features as its patron the foreign minister uh, Abdullah bin Zayed. So uh, you know, I I kind of highlight the uh, those aspects, but also the the various um, textual arguments that are put forward from the Quran sometimes from uh, prophetic statements which have great authority in the Sunni tradition and other sort of like more general arguments about uh, the preservation of order. And in many respects, it's about, you know, righting wrongs versus the preservation of order. So justice versus order. And this is a, you know, a a well-recognized trope in many respects. Um, In some respects, uh, so this is, we're talking about 2011 so far and how the scholars kind of responded to 2011. By the time we get to 2013, things start to change dramatically. So the Muslim Brotherhood came into power in Egypt uh, in, you know, towards the end of June 2012, if memory serves, and then they are ousted uh, in early July 2013. Um, And at that point, a number of these scholars, um, you know, come to the fore and serve um, the purposes of the military in ousting the Muslim Brotherhood but with different degrees of enthusiasm. And the most enthusiastic of these is, I'm going to mention his name again, Ali Gumar. So this chap over here basically comes out uh, with full force in support of the military and in some respects, you know, quite forcefully advocates um, mass slaughter in the streets of Egypt. A lot of that mass slaughter advocacy takes place in private to the military or and the security services exclusively. And I kind of reflect... Um, on what well, I, I, you know, I, I spend a, uh, a fair amount of time studying his statements and looking at, in a sense, the difference between how he was talking in public in a more conciliatory way and how he was talking to the military in private, which would be subsequently leaked over that summer, uh, in a way that was actually quite, um, quite surprising and shocking to a lot of his um, sort of peers uh, among the ulama. Um, so Ali Goma is a kind of class unto, its, unto himself in his support of statism. Um, and, you know, in my estimation, his statism is actually a, a one that identifies the state with the Egyptian military. So whatever the military says actually goes. And he develops these, in my estimation, very far-fetched um, sort of uh, understandings of exactly uh, how, um, you know, the Egyptian state and the Egyptian military in particular he stands in stands for Islam, and anyone who fights the Egyptian military is basically fighting God, fighting against God. It's an almost blasphemous act. Um, and so I I look at, uh, over a couple of chapters at his um, sort of support for the massacres, including most notably the Rabah massacre of um, August twenty thirteen, um, in which, according to uh, Human Rights Watch, likely over a thousand people were killed um, by the Egyptian military. So I think Human Rights Watch, and I quote this, uh, calls it the largest massacre of um, protesters in a single day in recent history um, uh, in in Egypt. Um, and then I also look at some of the um, sort of anti-coup ulama, what I described, because um, the Egyptian coup kind of creates a, a group, a backlash as well, but a backlash that has to, you know, express uh, itself in guarded ways if they are within Egypt. Um, And this is where I look at some other scholars. In a sense, um, the um, pro-democratic scholars aren't given too much of a hearing because Qaradawi steals all their thunder in the early part of the book. Um, There are, you know, plenty of scholars um, who do talk about uh, the importance of democracy in the literature. Um, Some of these people are discussed. 
Um, but I, as I say, because I wanted to give a, a rather granular reading of the thought, I, I focused on one individual who I hope is um, sort of representative and I think is, um, you know, worthy of that level of attention. So these other scholars, their sort of like opposition to the coup is highlighted. Um, and then uh, finally, uh, sort of in, in a kind of uh, the chapter before the conclusion, I, I engage in a, something of a reflection on um, where this kind of uh, fatwa giving to justify, in my view, highly immoral acts uh, of murder um, comes from, uh, you know, how can it be justified within the tradition? And I'm, it's a bit more of an academic debate that I'm looking at what some scholars have said. And I point out, actually, I think these scholars are misreading uh, the classical tradition in some respects. Um, and then I also look at, you know, what's happened beyond Egypt and this is something I hope to explore as a, as we were discussing, um, uh, James, before our um, sort of session started. Uh, I hope to explore in a future book the idea of, um, you know, what are the implications of um, authoritarian Islam? How does authoritarian Islam articulate itself systematically as a serious um, ideology of state? Um, you know, I, we, we theorize democracy, but I'd like to, in, in that book, also theorize autocracy. And that book I, I conceive of as a bit more of a, a work of political theory. So I, I will also engage in a critique of uh, sort of the uh, theorizing of uh, autocracy in, in that book and perhaps the tra the attempt to construct a theory of uh, democracy as well. Um, that, I hope, gives a, a good overview. The conclusion is kind of a summary uh, of, um, you know, how it's a kind of analytical summary of the various positions. Um, and what I think were important um, to uh, important drivers and motivating factors that led to um, a particular perspective. And as I say, I offer a <clears throat> something of a personal epilogue in which, um, sorry, in which I um, note my sort of own, uh, some, some personal reflections as an alim as well um, on uh, so uh, the the word alim for those who are less familiar is the singular form of the term ulama. It's uh, an Arabic singular. And um, as someone who is of that sort of training, <coughs> I engage in some sort of personal reflection as well in the epilogue for those who are interested. Thank you. Before we get into looking at the individual positions of the various prominent Muslim religious figures that you describe in your book, I want to actually drill down a little bit on what you said um, uh, just now and put it in, somewhat, in a somewhat more broader context than Egypt and much more in a context of what the legal issues are that Muslim scholars are dealing with. And it strikes me that fundamentally uh, it's two things. The first one, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the fault line that underlies these differences is whether or not the ruler should be obeyed with absolute obedience or whether or not uh, Muslims have the right to oppose and resist a ruler who's considered to be unjust. So, so this is in, in so many respects that the crux of the debate, the theological debate, you could say, um, on, on this issue. And it goes back to a verse in uh, the Quran, um, uh, verse 459, so... Um, chapter four, verse fifty-nine, where um, the sort of the Quran says, "Obey God and obey the Messenger, 
and meaning obey God and obey the Prophet Muhammad. And those in authority among you. And this is historically generally been understood to be um, political authority, those in political authority among you. So, um, you know, that, that's, I've only quoted the first part of the verse. I'll come to the second part in a moment. But that first part of the verse is actually quite crucial to the argument of the autocrats. They're saying, look, right there in the Quran, it says, right next to obedience to God and his messenger, it says you also have to be, uh, obey those in political authority. And um, I think um, that has been, uh, and I'd like to do a bit more of a historical sweep on on the analysis of that particular verse and, and the texts, because I... I spend a lot of time explicating how these scholars invoke this sort of a text, um, but not necessarily going into the history. So th- this sort of, uh, in fact, I, I do this in uh, another sort of a book chapter, which has just come out uh, maybe a couple of months before my book, um, a, a sort of uh, a text edited by Masuda Bano on uh, Salafism. But, um, you know, in a sense, uh, that, alongside um, certain hadiths. So the hadith, hadiths are, for those who are less familiar, um, statements attributed to the Prophet, and they have normative force um, for Muslims. Uh, in general, and Sunnis in particular, I would say that um, perhaps hadiths from the Prophet have a particular weight, um, and they have canonical collections and all the rest of it. Now, there is a hadith which is often cited by autocrats in this context, which is a hadith um, you know, put to Qaradawi, uh, right in the first chapter, if I recall correctly, um, and if not, in chapter two, where the prophet says, um, you know, you've been commanded to hear and obey your rulers, even if they strike your backs and they take your wealth. So it, it seems to give carte blanche to a ruler. It says, even if your rulers are tyrannizing you, then you have to um, sort of obey them. And the other side of this coin, of course, is, um, as you indicated, the imperative to stand up for justice, to do the right thing, or to call people. The phrase in the Quran in Arabic is Amr bil ma'ruf and nahi an al-munkar, which uh, Michael Cook, in his award-winning book, translates in the title as commanding right and forbidding wrong. Um, and... Uh, uh, in a sense, this is um, Michael Cook, um, actually a scholar I had the pleasure of studying with at Princeton. Um, he wrote a 700-page book on that concept um, and talks uh, throughout Islamic history and talks about it as a duty um, that is quite clearly sort of recognized within the Muslim community throughout uh, its history. And part of that duty is to also, um, you know, uh, correct injustices in wider society, including... Um, sort of trying to set a right, um, you know, injustices perpetrated by the state, by the head of state, for example. So I, I think that that tension is really at the heart of this book. Um, I'll, I'll just sort of conclude by pointing out that in addition uh, to, you know, having this duty of commanding the right and forbidding wrong, there are plenty of hadiths as well, which um, sort of appear ostensibly to contradict this uh, duty of just hearing and obeying, and even if they strike your backs and take your wealth. Um, and it's really a question, it's a theological question of reconciling a, apparently uh, sort of conflicting evidence. So, um, you know, just as 
one example of one hadith and one example of a verse. The hadith um, that would seem to be relevant here is the Prophet saying the greatest form of jihad, which you know in the Islamic sort of uh, tradition actually refers to struggle of any kind. Um, but uh, the Prophet says in a hadith, the greatest form of jihad is to stand before a tyrant um, and command command them to right and forbid them from wrong and to be killed for it. So in a sense, like to take one's life into one's own hand to for the sake of justice, right? Um, whereas the uh, the verse that I mentioned to begin with, uh, where it says, um, you know, oh, you who believe, um, obey God and obey the messenger and those in authority among you, uh, widely understood to be political authority. The scholars um, who are pro-democracy point out the second part of the verse says, but if you dispute about anything, then go back to God and his messenger. Um, meaning the ultimate authority lies with God and his messenger. And the uh, sort of exegetical tradition also highlights the fact that it says, obey God and obey the messenger, repeating the verb in the case of God and his messenger, indicating unconditionality. But then it says, and those in authority among you, um, the exegetes generally point out that the absence of the repetition of the verb is something that indicates that that is not unconditional, that's conditional obedience, as long as they are obeying God and the messenger. So, you know, there are all sorts of theological ways to sort of um, argue with these sorts of texts. And, and that's something which I do to some extent um, in this. Um, but most of the time, I'm, I'm portraying the arguments as they're coming out at a particular point. The book is organized chronologically, so it's also part of a narrative where people are arguing in various ways. So it's not, um, I'm not able to articulate in a systematic um, sort of philosophical fashion, shall we say, the various perspectives as some academics might expect. But I hope it makes for um, sort of, to a certain extent, compelling reading to just read the narrative. I've, I've tried to tell a bit of a story as well. Having, having read the book, it certainly does. Uh, if I may, another fundamental difference between Karadawi and the counter-revolutionary or autocratic clerics, however you want to describe them, seems to be the question of how to prevent anarchy and chaos. For Karadawi, that appears to be greater transparency and accountability. Counter-revolutionary, it strengthened autocracy. Right. Absolutely. Um, and this is something, I mean, there's one scholar here um, who is an American scholar, um, a convert to Islam who somehow has become now a political figure in the United Arab Emirates, fascinatingly enough, despite living in California, Northern California. So uh, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf um, is uh, someone who has an interesting transition on this particular point. How do you deal with um, sort of uh, anarchy? Uh, is it through autocratic repression or is it through um, sort of like the... Um, as you put it, greater transparency, accountability uh, of those who are in power and who are perhaps perpetrating injustices and so on. And um, it's interesting to see uh, someone like Hamza Yusuf in February 20, uh, 2011, uh, writing enthusiastically about the um, uh, Egyptian revolution and quoting John F. Kennedy, who says, um, I can't remember the exact page where this is quoted, that um, you know, when a peaceful um, uh, revolution uh, is uh, made impossible, uh, violent revolution becomes inevitable, or words to that effect. Um, and then some months later, um, 
in some respects, you you can understand it as a change of heart that is um, brought about by the fact that the uh, revolutionary efforts become bogged down by later in that year. So, you know, Tunisia and Egypt fall remarkably quickly in a way that nobody really could have predicted. But then Libya um, ends up in civil war. The Syrian uprisings, the Bahraini uprisings, of course, fail because of, you know, the Gulf unity on that question, uh, interestingly enough. So the Qataris supported the suppression of the Bahraini uprisings, despite, you know, supporting uh, the um, sort of ousting of Mubarak and um, Ben Ali. And so what you have is a situation, um, I think, in Hamza Yusuf, uh, you know, to read somewhat charitably, he's seeing that, look, this is actually turning out to be something of a mess. And therefore, I'm going to oppose. And And he comes out and basically um, argues that, um, you know, our tradition, meaning the Islamic tradition, does not countenance rebellion against uh, rulers. And one of the points that I spend a lot of time on uh, in the chapter on Hamza Yusuf and his teacher, Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayer. So, I mean, this also explains Hamza Yusuf's involvement. Why is an American getting involved in Gulf politics? He's a, he's one of the most intimate students of Abdullah bin Bayer, who is, as I say, one of the most eminent scholars in the region. Um, and so uh, Abdullah bin Bayer is also one of these scholars who is very concerned about uh, uh, anarchy, but he um, presents revolution uh, as necessarily um, sort of identical with armed rebellion. And so there's no sort of like conceptual space in their worldviews for peaceful revolution. Any kind of opposition to the state is thereby um, sort of violent. It seems, uh, and I I think uh, if I recall correctly, I articulate it in this way towards the conclusion. What uh, Abdullah bin Bayer seems to believe is that if you start engaging in peaceful revolution or peaceful protest against these autocracies, they will come and they will kill indiscriminately. And you are responsible for that indiscriminate killing because you instigate, you sort of provoked them to it. Um, and as I put it in the chapter on Bin Bay, I say it's, it's as though it's kind of like a, a natural state for the state to be violent. And you just have to um, accept that. And of course, Qaradawi does not accept that. And, and thankfully, I think, um, you know, a lot of modern societies don't accept that. Um, and yeah, so I think, you know, that's a good way of probably characterizing that difference. Um, Indeed, you've described Yusuf al-Qaradawi as the most ardent supporter of the revolts. He was a longstanding opponent of what he described as tyranny. But it strikes me that his concept of democracy was different from the West's understanding of the term. His concept was one in which Muslim religious scholars would play a key role. And in some ways, as you mentioned, that was a role that he was granted in Gata, where he's lived since 1960, the time when Egypt was cracking down on the Muslim Brotherhood. To what extent was Karadawi advocating a modern form of the Ulema State Alliance, a concept coined by Islam scholar Ahmed Kuru? and which Kuru believes is responsible for much of the Muslim world's current problems. Right. Uh, this is the second time Kuru's book has been mentioned in, in uh, recent weeks, and uh, it just r- makes me um, sort of recognize that I need to get reading, because <laughs> I've only read about, I, I want to say about 10, 15 pages from the introduction, so I can only speak tentatively about his ideas. But... Um, I, I personally am not sure I, uh, you know, from the little I've read of Kuru that I would agree with his characterization of Islamic history in that regard. Fair I think, enough. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. 
but um, but at the same time, um, I do think that you know definitely um, people like Qaradawi do not advocate for liberal democracy, and um, I you know working in the uh, space of postcolonial and decolonial theory. Um, I'm sort of exploring some of these questions um, in a slightly different vein as well, um, as I have put it in the past. In a sense, we can think about um, liberal democracy and Islamic democracy as analogous in certain respects, in that in uh, a liberal democracy, um, majoritarianism should be sort of checked by uh, liberalism uh, or liberal values. And uh, I mean, it doesn't always happen. But um, there are certain tensions that arise when there is apparent conflict. And we can think about, you know, in a place like the UK, the Brexit vote, but also the election of uh, President Trump, who, um, you know, was, wasn't a liberal being elected by a, a state that, in a sense, um, is supposed to be governed by liberal uh, values and, um, and whose, uh, you know, civil service uh, equivalent in the US would have considered those to be core values to, um, you know, to the state. So, um, you know, th- there are these tensions that arise uh, in, in our modern context as we're dealing with kind of, in a sense, the retreat of democracy globally um, for the first time in a while. But at the same time, in the context of someone like Qaradawi with respect to Islamic democracy, I think Islam is supposed to play that sort of check on the majoritarianism um, that is possible. And I think that that needs to be explored in far greater detail in in the literature. And that's one of the things I hope to do in my future work. Because people think of, um, you know, Islamic democracy along the lines of something like Iran, where there's a guardian council. And um, I'm not sure, I mean, Khardawi hasn't articulated this in any great detail. Um, Other scholars who I talk about, Ahmed Raisuni, you know, have expressed um, sort of, you know, there's this question that arises, what if the populace votes for something which goes against Islam, as you understand it, for example? And, uh, you know, uh, people like Ahmed al-Raisuni have mentioned in passing, well, we haven't really gotten to that stage of the discussion yet, um, but we should be thinking about it as well. Um, And, uh, you know, I, I guess we have a similar kind of constitutional challenge in those sorts of moments as, you know, what do you do when an illiberal like Trump gets elected? Um, I'm not sure the answers are very clear cut. But at the same time, uh, at risk of sort of um, uh, talking for too long, and please feel free to interrupt me, James, uh, please don't hesitate. No, no, please, please continue. <laughs> I mean, at the same time, one of the things that I think about in, in these, uh, you know, discussions, and, and this is something I'd be happy to discuss with you at some length, uh, potentially, is that there is a presupposition that liberal democracy is the only correct form of democracy. This is kind of an argument that Shadi Hamid makes in his first book. Um, and, you know, he argues, well, why can't Islamists come up with an alternative form of democracy? Um, and, uh, you know, the the usual fears that are brought up is the right of minorities, respect for human rights, uh, respect for the rights of women, and so on. Um, you know, I, I think that those... Um, uh, what I would say um, from thinking within an Islamic conceptual paradigm is that um, Islam would have its uh, would have respect for human rights, rights of women, um, uh, and I forget the third thing I mentioned, but um, and the rights for minority uh, rights of minorities, but they are framed in different ways to the liberal tradition. And these get sort of awfully complicated, but they need to be explored uh, systematically. And I can give one sort of like maybe 
unusual example. Um, you know, when uh, in early Islam, uh, sort of uh, Muslims came into territories where there were um, basically uh, Zoroastrians, um, what Muslims, um, you know, considered to be Zoroastrians. I'm, I'm not very well informed on, on the actual nature of Zoroastrian doctrine, but they practiced incest as part of their sort of religious practices. And Muslim jurists discussed among themselves, well, I mean, should we countenance that within our domain? Is that something that we can legitimate? And the uh, more or less the sort of agreed upon position was, you know, they they can operate according to their own sort of norms within their own communities. If they come to our courts, then we will sort of uh, separate those, uh, those uh, marriages. And I think um, that sort of legal pluralism uh, is not really possible to countenance within the structure of most modern states. Um, and, and that's potentially a, a, a lack of flexibility that, um, you know, was to be found in the pre-modern period, but is no longer really sort of possible to countenance. Uh, apologies, my, my son is making noises. I don't know if uh, that's coming through on the sound. But yeah, but but I, I do think that, um, uh, you know, the, these questions are can be potentially quite complicated and need to be explored quite systematically. What I would say as a final kind of comment is that um, the... The presupposition that is often defaulted to in, our, in in discussions, and this was commented on by Pascal Menoré, who's a co colleague of mine at Brandeis University in a lecture he gave at Oxford, I want to say about three and a half weeks ago. Um, he was just saying that, um, you know, you have different approaches to the study of Islam. You have um, sort of what he described as the jihadologists, whose work in some respects serves to um, inform the intelligence community in the West about how to deal with most extreme forms of, um, you know, Islam as a security threat. You have the transitologists who are basically studying, um, you know, group Muslim groups where they think, okay, there are liberal possibilities here, and you know, uh, that's why these these groups are good because they tend towards liberalism, and we can hope and aspire that they will move towards liberalism. And then he said, but I see myself within the post-colonial sort of like space where actually what we need to think about is why does um, sort of liberalism need to be a reference point for these people? Um, that potentially is something which is um, an unfair imposition, shall we say. And I think that there's, um, that's a place where there is space for, you know, considerably nuanced discussion in my view. Um, because as I, as I see it, and I'm speaking for a moment as a theologian here, the Islamic tradition has ways of conceiving of human rights that don't maybe match up entirely with um, sort of liberal conceptions of it because of different assumptions at the beginning, um, or ways of thinking about minority rights which don't match up with liberal um, assumptions. Um, and and those are, you know, um, worth uh, us exploring before assuming that actually Islam doesn't respect liberal, uh, sorry, doesn't respect minority rights, doesn't respect women's rights, etc. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot more I can say about this. I was teaching a class at Oxford yesterday about this as well. <laughs> we were talking about, well, yeah, citizenship rights. Um, you know, we, we think about, you know, everyone getting equal citizenship rights. Um, 
do you mind if I uh, cl- conclude with this anecdote on citizenship? Sure. Or? No, please do. Please do. Okay, so we were just talking about, uh, this is actually last week's class. Um, yesterday we were talking about something slightly different. Um, so I, I teach a class on modern Islamic thought uh, as part of the MPhil and MSc courses at um, sort of St. Anthony's College um, uh, in Oxford. And um, uh, we were just reflecting on the idea that um, uh, this is kind of from Jonathan Brown. He has a, a fascinating paper on apostasy, uh, which is obviously a, a big sort of like question in uh, modern Western debates about Islam and, and freedom. And uh, he kind of has this throwaway comment, I want to say, uh, in the beginning of that paper, where he basically says, well, there's there's something to be asked about, you know, what's a sort of a, a more uh, reasonable system, a system where the bar for entry is extremely high very often, but once you're in and you are a citizen, uh, you enjoy um, you know, a wide gamut of rights, or one where the bar for entry is remarkably low, but there's no right of exit. <laughs> okay, and, and what I was saying is that, look, um, the bar for entry is so high, like my, my wife happens to be like an immigrant into the UK, and you know, we had to pay through the nose over a period of five years to be able to, um, and, and this is not, you know, unusual for immigrants. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, in many respects, it's an extremely intrusive process in, in the UK. I think it might be in the in other countries as well. Um, and, you know, um, it doesn't feel great, right? Um, but in a sense, we've come to accept that. We don't sort of think about the fact that actually, you know, Muslims in Muslim countries, very often the discourse says, well, Christians aren't second class citizens. I mean, someone who's uh, technically uh, not a citizen is not a citizen to begin with. Right. So, you know, it, it, it's an unusual sort of way of framing um, sort of the discussion, I think, when when we bring, you know, other participants into the discussion who will maybe bring a different perspective uh, on those sorts of questions. But uh, but yeah, that's um, enough of uh, sort of me. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the differences between the various approaches, legal, Muslim legal approaches, uh, have certainly sharpened with the co-optation by the United Arab Emirates of what you call initially wary enthusiasts of the revolts, people indeed like Hamza Yusuf and Abdullah bin Bayah. Tell us more about the co-optation and why the UAA needed to acquire compliance, compliance foreign compliance scholars in the absence of a class of Emirati ulama? Right. That's a fascinating question. I mean, so the, the UAE um, has been described as little Sparta, I forget. Um, by, by Jim which... Mata, the former U.S. Defense Secretary. Right, right. And, um, uh, you know, it, its ambition in the region um, in terms of projecting its own um, both soft power and hard power, uh, little Sparta, because it's got all these military bases in the region now, and it's shown uh, remarkable success in Yemen, although it's also been bogged down to a large extent. Um, so, you know, the UAE's ambition, I think, will extend to, you know, um, a whole range of areas. And, you know, in some respects, uh, MBS's rise is a, you know, consequence of uh, UAE lobbying, as is well known. Um, and uh, you know MBZ could be, is, is an age where he could be MBS's father. Um, he's a far more astute and um, nimble, I think, uh, sort of player in the region's geopolitics. So I, I think it makes perfect sense for him to also want to create that religious soft power um, sort of uh, projection opportunity um, in a region where 
you know, uh, Islam is the most powerful ideology in town, I think. Autocracy, um, uh, you know, my feeling is, and, uh, you know, I'd, I'd be happy to be contested on the, uh, you, you know, contested with on this, but my feeling is that, you know, the most potent mechanism to justify any political order after the sort of failure of Arab nationalism, uh, you know, in the 20th century uh, as an ideological um, bulwark, um, you know, is, uh, has tended to be uh, some kind of Islam. You know, it has to be, um, uh, the state has to be justified in Islamic terms on on some level. And that's why uh, the reason they're drawing on people like Abdullah bin Bayah and Hamza Yusuf, um, and indeed a, a whole constellation of international superstar scholars, as it were, um, is because, um, you know, there isn't, the Emirates isn't a natural center for Islamic scholarship, uh, or historically, uh, it's not like the uh, like Egypt, which the Azhar is over a thousand years old. I mean, very few institutions can boast that. The Azhar is older than my institution, I sometimes say in class. Um, and so, uh, you know, in that sort of uh, sense, it, it does make sense for them to try and bring someone like Abdullah bin Bayah. But Abdullah bin Bayah also, um, you know, has been writing about his wariness of democracy, going back to, you know, the Bush era democracy promotion agenda in the Middle East in the 2000s. Um, so he has a, um, a book um, published in 2007, I want to say, uh, called um, A Terrorism uh, Diagnosis and Cure, which has been translated um, Kind of uh, a little unusually, I thought the chapters were rearranged or something. Some of the language was, um, you know, changed in my estimation. But it was translated by Hamza Yusuf. So Abdullah bin Bayah has a short book. Hamza Yusuf has translated it as uh, The Culture of Terrorism or something like this. Um, uh, published, incidentally, I think in Singapore for some reason, or, or sort of distributed in Singapore in the main. And so, um, you know, those in that text, he basically says, well, um, democracy in, uh, you know, uh, in, uh, can lead to uh, the spread of um, sort of serious contention in society that can lead to violence. And um, uh, David Warren has some excellent analysis in his book, Rivals in the Gulf, where he talks about, um, you know, Abdullah bin Bayer basically is looking at the Algerian example. Um, that's where he took it from. So this is, you know, Algeria, where they had the uh, Islamists uh, kind of built a coalition that was poised to win the elections of that year. Um, and you know, Shadi Hamid quotes this as well, when victory is sort of uh, more dangerous than uh, defeat or something along those lines was, um, uh, and uh, I think Abbasi Madani, I don't know Algeria very well. I always defer to my my colleague in the Middle East Center, Michael Willis, on those sorts of questions. But, um, but yes, I, I do think that, uh, you know, Abdullah bin Bayer, since he has this kind of, um, already published view that democracy isn't really suitable for our parts of the world. We have our own way of doing things, kind of, I guess, like the founder of Singapore himself, right? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, um, as a consequence, uh, I think um, he, he sort of is this opportune character in the region. I, uh, you know, he, he was very quiet in the early part of the Arab revolutions, um, and his disquiet was clearly tapped on, uh, tapped into by a very, um, you know, careful listener in the UAE who brought it to the attention of the ruling classes there. Um, and, uh, and consequently, and the other thing to say about Abdul Ben Bayer, of course, is that he is from a, 
you know, he's a political um, sort of like figure as well. So as well as being a, a remarkably accomplished jurist, and um, I think he early in, on his career, on in his career, he kind of set up the judicial system of certain countries or something along those lines. Um, I wouldn't be too surprised. But then he was the deputy prime minister of Mauritania in the seventies, and so he's he's a man who is who left um, that. Uh, after that uh, sort of um, uh, ruling party was ousted in a military coup in, I believe, 1978. He left that for a acad- quiet academic life for 30 years. Um, but then, um, you know, he's come back into his element as a politician, it would seem, um, in his 80s. So a fascinating figure, um, quite unique, I think, in combining sort of the highest levels of scholarship with the highest levels of statecraft. Um, and uh, and so he is this um, important figure in many respects in the region now. I mean, particularly with Binbaya, maybe less so, but also with Yusuf, Hamza Yusuf, uh, and you know, particularly with Binbaya because he was so long closely associated with uh, Yusuf al Karadawi. Uh, he was the vice president of the International Union of uh, Muslim Scholars. Uh, one has to wonder how much of his, the change in his positions is has been conviction and how much is the result of an offer he couldn't refuse. Hmm. That's very interesting. I mean, you know, a, a, an offer he couldn't refuse in, in those parts of the world often refers to something that would come from Don Corleone, right? Um, so I, I wouldn't think that that would be something he'd be subject to in any sense of the imagination. But, but would someone in the sort of 80s be seduced by wealth? I don't know. I mean... Um, wealth and prestige. So prestige. So in a sense, leaving a legacy, having a, a, a vision and a project. <clears throat> I mean, you know, I don't know if there's any truth to this, but, you know, I, I understand that, um, you know, he has been given um, sort of UAE citizenship Um you know, Qaradawi was uh, a Qatari citizen. My understanding, again, um, I, I haven't verified this, but he had a diplomatic passport. Um, I think that caused Interpol some problems at some point. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, and he has a home now in the UAE. I, I actually visited um, Bin Bayer's home in 2009, and my father used to work in Saudi Arabia. So um, I, one of my family trips, I, I took the opportunity to meet with Bin Bayer twice uh, in his home. So he lives in, you know, right at the at the outskirts of Jeddah. He could have um, driven to Mecca in half half an hour, I think. It's a very fortunate position, so to speak. Um, and so, uh, you know, people like him, I think, you know, with the sort of... Uh, poli- people who go into politics usually do have ambition, right? I mean, just reading a, an interview of Tony Blair and he was saying, look, uh, those of us who end up in politics are usually very ambitious and we don't want to retire in our sort of 50s or something like that. And that's why he's trying to do so much uh, in the world. But, um, you know, Bin Beya is perhaps comparable in that way um, that he was forced into uh, a quiet academic life and he, um, you know, obviously would have um, uh, achieved a good deal in terms of his teaching. He had some very illustrious students, including people like Salman Lauda, ironically. Um, and, uh, you know, now perhaps it's his final years, he's thinking, okay, well, I do also have a vision for the world that I see um, potentially something I can realize some of in the course of this, and I'm being supported by a state. Um, At the same time, um, 
there seem to be these kind of long-standing ties that David Warren talks about between the Emirates and the UA uh, and and the Mauritanian sort of like state. Um, Hamza Yusuf, uh, to a certain extent, uh, he had his early Islamic education uh, after conversion in the Emirates as well. So there are those sorts of ties. There was one other thing I was just thinking about with respect to Bin Bayya and the Emirates. Um, because uh, in addition to, in a sense, um, ambition, I I mean, my personal reading, and it's very difficult to get into these people's minds, and I'm not sure he would welcome me interviewing him after me writing this book, uh, which is kind of always a bit of a, uh, an occupational hazard writing this sort of work. But um, I... I think he was genuinely concerned about anarchy in the region. And he genuinely, I mean, this is the point that I make in the chapter as well, that for him, uh, autocracy was the normal, you know, and um, uh, people, you know, yes, uh, there are cert- there's certain unpleasantness. Sometimes you get a bad ruler and they'll, you know, treat you badly. But worse than that is people are going to disrupt the order. Um and call for things like democracy, which we don't know where it's going to end. Um, you know, as he put it, you know, um, when he was asking about what's going to happen, what's the what's the outcome going to be of the Egyptian revolution? People were telling him, we don't know, we don't know. And for him, that lack of knowledge is far too um, dangerous. People's lives can be disrupted, people can die. And lots of people did die in the process of the Egyptian revolution. We can't deny that. And so that justifies any kind of um, repressive uh, act of repression um, because the act of repression is measured, deliberate um, sort of killing. It's kind of in a smaller way, the quote of um, Ali Gumar comes to mind. I will kill a thousand to prevent the death of a uh, hundred thousand or sorry, I'll kill one to prevent the death of a thousand, something along those lines. Um, so yeah, I think that logic, which I find a bit of a sinister logic to be honest. To be right. Uh, various authors, including Ibrahim Musa, Amr Osman, and Mohammed Fadl, argue that support for autocracy has been baked into Sunni theology and law over the centuries. You seem to nibble at the margins in your criticism of this view, but don't fundamentally reject the notion. Would that be correct? And if so, does that make Qadawi's Fikal Thawra or jurisprudence of the revolution an innovation? Or an alternative interpret, or simply an alternative interpretation of Islamic law, right? I, I mean, like it looks like I will have to write more extensively if I'm giving the impression that I'm only nibbling at the margins. Um, I mean, to a certain extent, uh, you know, I, I um, wrote that uh, chapter. Um, you know, in in the process of the writing, I I was coming on to a deadline to submit and things like that. So I, I wish you know. As with all of these things, that you always want to have a bit more time to finish, but you also want to get it published and so on. Um, I wanted to make the case that a um, fundamental sort of like uh, prop on which a lot of these scholars argue that the Sunni tradition uh, justifies a kind of autocracy um, is Ghazali. And uh, Ghazali is this uh, very influential um, sort of Sunni theologian and jurist uh, from who dies in the year 1111. I always tell my students, very memorable date. You'll never forget that. He dies in the year 1111, but is you know one of the most influential figures in the history of uh, Islam. I think William Montgomery Watt says, I can't remember in which book, that uh, 
he was perhaps the most influential um, sort of Muslim scholar after the Prophet himself, <laughs> you know, after Muhammad. Ghazali is invoked by one of these scholars to say that actually, um, you know, the way in which um, the ruler should be is owed uh, absolute allegiance and cannot be sort of contested and so on. But one of the things that I point out, this is taken from a text which is um, pseudo-epigraphic. It's attributed to Ghazali, but the vast majority of scholars question its attribution to Ghazali. And so consequently, what I'm saying is, well, you can't put that to Ghazali. Um, and I also try to point out, uh, again, drawing on uh, excellent secondary literature that already exists, uh, particularly on the work of Khalid Abdul Fadl, uh, who's um, written a book called Rebellion uh, and Violence in Islamic Law, um, published, I want to say, in the year 2001 by Cambridge University Press. So Khalid Abdul Fadl um, uh, points out that, well, what does the doctrine of quietism even mean? This notion that Sunnis uh, were perfectly comfortable with autocracy because they said, well, order is more important than sort of justice, as it were. Um, in fact, doesn't hold if we think about this doctrine of quietism as it's often articulated. They say that um, if someone comes and uh, removes the just ruler uh, or just authority um, or the rightful ruler, and then things settle down and they have full control um, and you know, in a sense, order is restored. Then you can, uh, you should treat that as a legitimate new ruler. So this is, in a sense, being the argument that's being portrayed here is when Sisi came and removed the rightful legitimate ruler, uh, Morsi came through a legitimate process. That was considered to be, um, you know, a uh, a justifiable act. That's the argument that's being made here, but. In uh, some sense, the, the argument that I make is that actually, uh, and this is from Noah Feldman, so I'm not being terribly original in this chapter <laughs> either, um, you know, is not that, um, you know, uh, <laughs> forgive me, uh, the argument I'm making is not that therefore coups are legitimate, it's that the replacing of the ruler is legitimate and therefore any ruler is open to question is open to accountable so accountability of some sort. As long as someone comes and removes them successfully and is able to sort of stabilize the situation thereafter. So actually the Sunni tradition advocates the removal uh, of rulers as much as it advocates the supporting of autocracy. Meaning there isn't, uh, you know, it's it's not fair to use the Sunni tradition in that way. In in my estimation, as uh, Noah Feldman says, the that legitimation took place in a context in which the public sphere wasn't really in the control of these autocrats. The public sphere was um, a uh, based on a Sharia-based rule of law system. Um, and as long as rule of law existed, um, the ulama were really in control. They occupied the judiciary. They occupied sort of, uh, I mean, this goes, I guess, back to Ahmed Kuru's book, and we'd have to, I'd have to read that to be able to give a proper answer to this. But in many respects, I see the ulama as civil society agents. They're independent of the state. They're not working at the behest of an autocrat. Um, and consequently, um, as Noah Feldman puts it, um, the the move to ratify a usurper's authority is actually a brilliant maneuver in preserving the authority of the Sharia and the ulama over any claims made by whoever happens to be in power. Because even the head of state, and again, Noah Feldman you know, presents this in, in considerable detail in his book, The Fall and Rise of the Islamic State. 
even you know uh, the head of state in a um, sort of Islamic state in classical theory is not over the Sharia. They are under the rule of law, and he points out the distinction between that and, for example, in uh, Roman law, where the emperor, uh, the Roman emperor, was quite literally above the law. The law did not apply to him, whereas it did apply to um, the the head of state in a in a Sharia rule of law system. Um, so, for that reason, I, I'm actually arguing, and I, I'm glad that you've asked me this question because I need to reread that chapter now and think about how to articulate it in a way that really clarifies what I'm trying to say. That no, actually, you can't draw on the classical tradition, and you know, in a straightforward way, say that it justifies autocracy. Actually, it also justifies rebellion. <laughs> Right. Uh, right. Osama, unfortunately, the clock is ticking. We could easily go on. No, no, was, this was fascinating. We could go on for another hour. I'm However, sure. before I let you go, tell us what you are working on now. Or, or before I let you go, tell us what you are working on now and what your next project will be. Thank you. I mean, um, uh, I, I really need to thank you for inviting me to this, and uh, I, I'm, I'm very gratified for your interest in my book, and, and I'm really looking forward to learning about your book as well because it, it covers some of the uh, some similar terrain as well. But at the moment, I'm I'm looking at a few projects actually, um, as tends to happen, and I'm not sure which is going to win out in being published first. Um, I am, uh, you know, currently hopefully publishing a, a short translation of a book by Karadawi where Qaradawi is basically taking on extremist um, sort of, yeah, you know, extremist theological um, sort of doctrines. Um, and he doesn't name it in that book because it's published actually in 1978. So it's, it's quite early in this entire sort of like maelstrom of the emergence of certain types of theology. But um, these are, in some respects, a direct confrontation with the interpretation, certain interpretations of Sayyid Qutb's work. So the, the very... Uh, famous uh, sort of uh, ideologue of Muslim Brotherhood dies in 1966, uh, hanged by Nasser. And um, so I, I do have that coming out. It's a short book. It's a short translation of it. The Arabic title is Zahirat al-Ghulwi fi takfir And I'm still thinking about exactly how to choose the, uh, you know, how to translate that. But roughly the sort of phenomenon of excess in excommunication or potentially extremism in excommunicating um, other believers, basically. So that's one small project, but um, a larger project which would hopefully come follow up on on this text is looking at giving a closer look to the doctrines of autocracy that have um, you know really underpinned uh, the uh, Arab counter revolutions. So I'd like to do a closer reading of Bin Bayer's work, a look at how it fits into um, the sort of uh, the emerging Middle East, new Middle East, as it were, um, and. Um, in uh, as I kind of indicated, I'd like to have an element of political theory there that also engages in a constructive project of thinking and articulating an Islamic democratic theory. So, um, you know, that's uh, what I look forward to, and I find it very exciting, but uh, it's just about getting down to the work at this point. Osama al-Azami, those sound like great projects. Thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it and wish you all the best and take care. Thank you for having me.